Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valls. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're going to be talking about higher education in prisons with Ruth McFarlane, Dalton Harrison and Sean Parker. So join us as we explore the current state of prison higher education, barriers to prison study and the rehabilitated student. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. Just like last month, this month has been busy. I've spent much of October helping students to write and edit their UCAS personal statements. We have worked hard to eliminate the stock phrases and reduce the draft autobiographies down to 3,900 characters or so. Staff have diligently worked through the pages and pages of online forms that accompany each US university application submitted via the Common Application website. The one university application system that seems to have the uncanny knack of placing reference deadlines slap bang in the middle of English school holidays. And alongside the day job, I've personally had the opportunity to catch up on some overdue governor business, looking in on the builders who have been into my daughter's primary school this week to spruce up the old Victorian building in time for the new half term and the preparations for Advent. One thing that has concerned me this week has been the sight of Durham University students struggling to secure accommodation for the start of the new academic year. The cost of living crisis, coupled with the recent sharp rise in interest rates, has clearly had a significant impact on rents in places the size of Durham, which is by no means large for an English university city. Former students and teacher friends of mine reported similar experiences in other English and Scottish university cities last year, as universities struggled to accommodate the increased number of entrants generated by the rise in A-level grades in 2021. With various media outlets reporting that many Durham students had queued overnight to seek accommodation with private letting agents who, rather incredibly, seemed to open up their student housing lists on the same day each academic year, dissatisfied students staged a significant protest outside the university library on Friday. Central to the student protest was the claim that the university had admitted many more students than the colleges and the wider city had the capacity to house. This had left students largely at the mercy of private landlords who had increased rents by as much as 150% in some cases. The University of Durham have released a number of statements concerning the accommodation situation this week, and University Pro Vice-Chancellor Jeremy, Jeremy Cook emailed all Durham students on Wednesday before the student demonstration to explain that A-level grade awards and uncertainty in the local rental market 
had put uncharacteristic pressure on accommodation places. Cook also promised that 750 to 800 college beds would be available to current students wishing to return to campus from late November, that a student management housing group would be established to find further solutions to the problem, and that the university's cost of living hub would support those needing further financial support and guidance. As pictures of bedraggled looking students queuing the length of city streets reached social media, Durham put out a further statement on Thursday, which stated that the university authorities were, quote, very aware of the current situation, end quote, and were, quote, sympathetic to the concerns of our students with regard to seeking accommodation for 2023-24. This is an important issue. It concerns us and is receiving our urgent attention, end quote. The fuller statement went on to say, we always plan our student admissions cycle carefully with factors such as accommodation and other areas of resourcing in mind. Contrary to some media reports and statements, it is not the case that Durham University admitted students in an irresponsible manner. But we do acknowledge the changes in the private rental market, changes in the behaviour of letting agents and landlords, and changes in government policy have created pressure for our students and we will do all we can to assist them. We took active steps this year to ensure we had a lower intake than 2020 and 2021. We will be doing the same for the 2023 intake. We anticipated pressure on the private rental market and increases in rent. We had earlier engaged in dialogue with letting agents to encourage them not to enter into early selling. Unfortunately, we have still seen an early rush for accommodation. We have been working rapidly to communicate with and offer additional support to our students. We are not able to dictate where private landlords, sorry, what private landlords and letting agencies decide to charge. Students have described cases of significant increases to rents in multiple occupancy houses. We understand that cost pressures due to inflation and interest rate rises will inevitably see changes to rents, but we urge that all parties agree that rises should be no more than government inflation indices. The statement then goes on to offer further reassurances concerning accommodation for next year and further support that the university is making available to those who need it. However, accommodation has always been a significant issue for university students entering the private rental sector for the first time, typically a long way away from the discerning eyes and wisdom of more experienced parents and older siblings, and sometimes with the expensive storage locker of a halls room as their only reference point for student living. I'm sure we've all heard horror stories of the confiscated deposits, the short notice midterm eviction, and the shared house with mushrooms sprouting through the living room carpet. In my own student days, my housemates and I had to contend with an electricity meter that didn't seem to work properly for three years and a kitchen wall that got damp every time it rained on the inside. But that was back in the last century. 
In April 2020, the Office for Students commissioned a survey of student experiences of university accommodation during academic year 2018-19 at the height of the COVID lockdown. The survey pointed to distinctly variable provision across the sector, but it also revealed just how few students the universities themselves actually accommodate. In 2018-19, when undergraduate learning largely took place online, only 19% of students were living in accommodation directly provided and maintained by universities, while 20% were living in the parental home. Throughout this period, however, 29% of students were living in private rented accommodation. As university teaching moved back to the seminar rooms and lecture halls, it was inevitable that students in cities like Durham would need to return to private rental housing within reasonable commuting distance of the university. I'm not quite so sympathetic to all of the Durham students' demands, though. To me, getting a part-time job doesn't seem wholly incompatible with university study, and subsidising student public transport surely falls outside the remit of university provision for all but the most vulnerable. But the National Union of Students and Office for Students do need to firmly encourage universities to get a better grip of accommodation issues now that COVID distancing has largely become a memory of an unsettling recent past and the maintenance grant is rising by just 2% this year. Quite a few of the students I taught last year will have been standing in those Durham street queues last week. And many of my students who have been completing UCAS forms this month are hoping for an undergraduate place in 2024 at other small university cities confronted by similar challenges. One would like to think the university will be able to accommodate them when they arrive. On a not wholly unrelated note, Nick Gibb, one of those officials that the Durham Pro Vice-Chancellor seems to regard as responsible for the rise in A-level grades, and therefore a contributor to the Durham accommodation shortage, returned to the Department for Education this week. Inevitably, Mr Gibb happens to be an alumnus of that very same University of Durham. So I wonder whether he will get a mention in the latest edition of Dunnell magazine when the glossy annual alumni circular next hits the doormat. Mr Gibbs's duties as Minister of State for Education have yet to be formally specified, but given his past work in schools policy, I'd be surprised if these stray too far from former portfolios. Government policy on proposed academisation could certainly do with some renewed impetus. Another familiar face is that of Robert Halfon, formerly the very capable co-chair of the Education Select Committee, who had the considerable challenge of trying to hold Education Secretary Gavin Williamson to account on laptop provision during school lockdowns and the operation of the now notorious 2020 grading algorithm, to say nothing of the even more taxing task of getting the Secretary of State to file his committee papers on time. Mr Halfon, an Exeter alumnus, if you were wondering, joins the department as a Minister of State, bringing his considerable knowledge on education matters to the role. He can be expected to act quickly on the findings of the substantial SEND report that appeared during Kit Malthouse's short tenure as Secretary of State, 
and turn its proposals into concrete policy measures. Mr Malthouse has been replaced by Gillian Keegan, the Secretary of State for Education, one of the state school educated members of the refreshed cabinet. A business graduate and alumna of Liverpool John Moores University and the London Business School, she will doubtless be keen to be seen driving forward the Education Department's policies, having been rather unfairly criticised for her absence from the department during the A-level grading chaos of August 2020, while serving as Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Apprenticeship and Skills. Certainly, her previous work as Minister of State for Care and Mental Health should leave her well-placed to understand the mental health issues that have become a major issue throughout the education system in the aftermath of COVID distancing, isolation and the return to public examinations with 2019 grade distributions. I will keep you updated on any other developments that emerge from the DfE between now and Christmas. Tonight's show brings together some of the issues I have already mentioned as we focus on the higher education experience for those with relatively little choice on the matter of where they work, where they live and where they study. Namely, prisoners following a course of higher education on the prison estate of England and Wales. So tonight we ask, what is the current state of higher education in prisons? What barriers prevent prisoners from accessing high quality higher education? And how keen are UK universities to support ex-offenders as they take the first steps on their journey of rehabilitation and reintegration into society? Joining me to consider these ideas are Ruth McFarlane, Dalton Harrison and Sean Parker. Ruth is co-director of DWRM Consultants, a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy and an expert contributor to the 2020 Education Select Committee inquiry into education in prisons. A former teacher and lecturer, she established DWRM as a social enterprise with co-director Dan White to support meaningful education for prisoners upon their release and to bring together expertise and relevant experience of studying at higher education level in prison and of facilitating the provision of appropriate study materials. And I'm pleased to say that Ruth joins us on the line now. Good evening, Ruth, and thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio this evening. Ruth, are you there? If you could call in, that would be brilliant. Joining Ruth on the panel is Dalton Harrison, a transgender activist, poet and higher education mentor with DWRM. Dalton is in his second year of a BA in criminal justice and criminology at the University of Leeds. His debut book, The Boy Behind the Wall, Poems of Imprisonment and Freedom, tells of a journey from childhood innocence and the trauma of teenage years that leads to adulthood and prison with wit and hard-won wisdom. It is published by Reconnecting Rainbows. Hello, Dalton. It's great to have you with us this evening. Hiya. It's good to be here, yeah. Completing the panel is Sean Parker, 
a writer, artist, and lecturer on art, cultural studies, and justice reform. Sean lived in Istanbul for 10 years, where he gave a lecture at Istanbul University and a TED talk, Stammering and Creativity, at Kadir Has University in 2013. He has won five Kostler Arts Awards, including a platinum for his play, The Wolfstad Wire, 2020. He has been published in Time Out Istanbul, Louder Than War, Cosmopolitan TR and Faction magazines, and has appeared on NTV Turkey and BBC Radio Wales. Good evening, Sean. Thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, hello, Christopher. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks very much. And can I just check that Ruth is with us now? Good evening, yes, Ruth. Yes, I've got that sorted now. Thank you. Perfect. In the first section of the show, I'd like to look at the current state of higher education provision in English prisons. So, Ruth, would you be able to offer us an overview of how things stand at present? Yeah, sure. So, um, the 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 statutory provision of, of education in prisons, which is government funded, is really focused around a, quite a basic offering of um, level one and two functional skills, maths and English, um, with some ICT and some English for speakers of other languages. Um, and what we've what we know is that there, there's a real gap in provision of, of level three A level equivalent qualifications, um, and therefore a lack of opportunity for people to progress on to higher education. Historically, the Open University has been the main provider of distance learning, um, well across the UK, and therefore has also um, been providing higher education for people in prison. Um, and but what that's meant is that there really hasn't been ha any choice. So although students in prison are expected to pay for their tuition fees via student loan in the same way as mainstream students, um, they've really only been able to choose the open university. So what we're aiming to do through DWRM is to bring other universities into this arena, um, offering qualifications, degree pathways, um, aspirational study experiences for people um, and also to be supporting so when people are released from prison to support them to continue studying um, and to find um, careers and meaningful employment. So it's partly about the experience of studying itself and partly about the skills required for rehabilitation and moving back into society? Yes, yeah, so I mean, we, we know um, research shows us that um, partly um, access to education at this level um, contributes to much lower rates of reoffending, but it also helps people to um, address some of their own personal circumstances of how they got there in the first place. We know that lots of people who go to prison. Um, have had very negative experiences of education and that sometimes what's needed is um, kind of a bit of a, a, a nudge or a boost from a, from a really focused um, teacher in prisons to um, persuade people that actually, you know, this could be the right avenue for them. Um, and so we, we, I know lots of people who have had this experience. There's, uh, currently, out of a prison population of 80,000 people, there are fewer than 1,500 people who are studying at the higher education level, so less than 2%. Um, and we know that that belies a great um, intellect and a, a missed opportunity for lots of people. Well, I would imagine there are 
probably quite a number of people in university who would want to or would be capable of studying for a degree if the option was available to them. Of people in prison? Yes, certainly, yes. And there's a, there's a great deal of interest, there's a lot of demand um, for, for this level of study and those people who are fortunate enough to be able to engage in higher education um, are proved to be very successful with it. Their, their completion and pass rates are the same as for um, adult learners in higher education. Um, and also then when people are released, it means that they can have um, partly greater um, aspirations and goals about their own careers, but also just um, uh, an articulacy and um, a confidence in, in themselves and in their abilities. And we know, don't we, that the prison estate is undergoing some redevelopment at the moment. Does it make a difference whether one finds oneself in a public sector prison or a private sector prison in terms of the education provision available? Um, the, statutory the statutory provision of education ac across the estates is, is the same whether you're in the private or, or public um, prisons. Um, of course, there is some difference in the... Um, in the facilities and so on. Um, really, a lot of it is very dependent on um, on the leadership and, and the, the, the governor and the approach from, from the senior leadership team in the prison. And so we find that some prisons are very supportive of a wide range of education and vocational training and so on, um, and others are uh, less so and um, more focused on security and management and so on. Okay, thank you very much, Ruth, for that explanation as to how things stand at the moment. Um, Dalton, does your experience <coughs> seem to chime with that? Yes, definitely. Um, I think for me, the prison that I was in specifically were security based, and I did find it very frustrating as a learner trying to manoeuvre around that security because it, it seemed almost impossible on a regular basis. And in terms of the security, could you give us some kind of sense as to what that might entail? So um, accessing your books is the main thing and also ac accessing the Internet. So um, obviously there's a special um, sort of thing that you can go in as you can't access the Internet. But every single thing that I would press, the link would tell me that I couldn't access it because I was an incarcerated prisoner. And um, one of the things that hit home for me at the time in my arts and languages access course was I was trying to access Martin Luther King's speech um, about freedom and you know and it was I thought wow I, I need this and I, and I pressed it and it said no you, you can't access this you're an incarcerated prisoner and I think for me that was just an absolute it was one of the worst disheartening moments um, for sure but one of the main things that you definitely still experience in prison is um, the lack of the paperwork coming through so you're waiting on your books you're waiting on all the paperwork that gives you your questions are and they don't always get through security at the same time or there's a massive backlog and you get them at the last minute you have to ask for extensions you feel like you're already behind so that's quite a chain that happens even before you can start learning sorry Dalton I'm getting a little bit buzzing on your microphone there I might come back to you in a minute I wonder if you might just have a look at that for me and see if you can um, uh, adjust that for me Sean does does what Dalton say remind you of your experience uh, hi, um, absolutely, yeah, uh, completely right. Um, it's a hostile environment for education, essentially prison. Um, it kind of uh, um, 
Um, are you still there? Can you hear me? Still there, yeah. Sorry, I've got a difficult, difficult kind of line as well. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a hostile place, and it's very suspicious of education. It thinks that um, if a if a prisoner is kind of curious about emancipating themselves or attempting to learn, that they're up to something basically. And um, as kind of uh, Ruth was talking about earlier, um, there are some that are security minded and some that are attempting to be progressive. But it's kind of, it's just education in, in the name only, um, basically is how I would put it. We try. I, I kind of attempted to, t- um, sort of attempted to do a PhD, um, from Dartmoor. And, um, it was good with the Prison Education Trust who really tried their best. But eventually they came back after six months of trying to get the letters to say, so, sorry, Sean, we can't. We can't do this. It's, it's impossible. <laughs> so I said, okay, thank you for trying. <laughs> and I gave up. Basically. Yeah, Dartmoor Prison is a prison I know relatively well, actually, being a, a originally a Dartmoor local. Oh. Um, difficult enough to get an internet signal, difficult enough to get a phone signal when you go down there. So <laughs> I wonder how the prison coped with it, being a, a very, very old prison building indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, very old, very kind of crumbling and very beautiful, if you like that kind of thing, which I do. So that's kind of how I um, sustained being there as well. Um, it, it's amazing to look at, but the postal sort of system in prison is very, very difficult. It takes ages for anything to get in and get out. Um, when you do get the letters, it's the best part of the day. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's very true that when the letter comes under your door, or um, it's just extremely exciting after dinner of an evening. And that was a, that was the first time that I got a letter off WRM, which is the organisation of Ruth's. And it was so, it's so such a great feeling that there are people out there trying to help you. And um, it succeeded with me. Um, I got something at the end of it. It wasn't my PhD, but I got a good sort of certificate and um, out now and uh, put it all behind me. But the stuff that you're doing, the work that you're doing and that Ruth and Dalton are doing is utterly valuable. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your words on that. Um, Dalton, have you, are you, have you fixed your microphone issue, do you think? It's still a bit buzzy. I might I might have to ask you to disconnect and reconnect and we'll try and get you back in okay. on a better line, I think. Um, Ruth, so there we are. We've heard testimony from Dalton and Sean about the power that this communication has had for them both. Um, could you say a little bit more about how you make yourself available to prisoners in the prison estate? Yeah, sure. So um, alongside my business partner, Dan, um, who, so I have a background of of, um, teaching in prisons and a lot of work supporting people in prison. And Dan himself studied um, while he was on a long prison sentence. And so between us, we feel that we kind of understand a lot of the barriers sort of from both sides of the fence. Um, And what we're trying to do is, is to recreate a learning community for people who are very much studying in isolation. So we try, we, we recognise all the issues that Dalton and Sean have described in terms of the problems of getting books and paperwork in. Um, we communicate with our students through um, a system called Email a Prisoner, which allows us to 
sending emails, albeit ones that then get printed out and put under the door, but they do at least, it's quite successful in, in getting contact with people and they can then write a reply which gets scanned and sent back. We also have a free phone number, which means that students are able to call us for study support um, and to speak to their tutors at, at designated times. Um, and one of the most exciting things is that we're working in partnership with um, Coracle, who have devised um, securely approved Chromebooks. And so in those prisons which already have a contract with Coracle, we're actually able to offer digital study materials so that people can have a device in their cell and can be watching videos and reading their um, their. Uh, assignments or preparing their assignments, reading their supported materials and so on. What would you say to those members of the public who might say that it was relatively difficult for children to get hold of digital materials during lockdown? Um, how much government money should be spent on putting this into prisons as compared with putting it in schools? Well, of I mean, of course, I absolutely think that um, schools need to be having a good quality of digital education, but I don't think the two should be mutually exclusive. Um, if we are not um, equipping people in prison with appropriate digital skills, they come out of prison really not being able to function in society. Um, everything that we do now is, um, is digital and requires an understanding of how things work online. Um, I spoke to a man last week who was recently released from prison and he didn't even know how to buy a bus pass because he said, apparently I have to do it via the online and I don't know what that is. And that, how's that helping anybody? Um, so I, I, I recognise that uh, schools haven't always got the funding that they need, um, but the situation in prisons is, is absolutely dire. And there's the such... Um, uh, risk aversion around um, security, but the, the solutions that are available um, address all of those concerns. And certainly the, the Chromebook solution that I've just described is an offline, um, unconnected um, digital solution. It's a, it's a Chromebook, but it doesn't have the internet connection. That's obviously not available to any um, serving prisoners. But it does mean, um, as I've described, that, that people can access those digital materials, which means that they're not waiting for things to be posted in and out. Thank you very much. That's a <coughs> very interesting answer, I think. Um, would you agree, Dalton? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Is, it, is there still a problem with the line? Oh, it's all cleared up now. We can hear you perfectly. Um, yeah, so I think um, finding different ways to, to get things into prison it, is, is so important as somebody that left prison and I didn't know what I was doing I'd only been in for two years but yet I felt like everyone had moved on digitally um, I went to the job center and asked for job seekers and straight away they're like oh it's universal credit I thought oh and it's that idea of having to sit there turn on that computer and figure out what you're doing and it's such a scary prospect if you if you don't have technology you risk homelessness you risk not being able to access your benefits if you don't um, if you don't have all these minimal computer skills, uh, really you're you're going straight back to prison because you can't access uh, life anymore. Yeah, it is certainly amazing how much of ordinary life in society now revolves around some kind of digital connection, whether it's paying your tax, whether it's trying to make sure you've been paid once you've got a job. It all seems to be tied up in that new digital world. 
So we'll come back to some of these challenges to studying in prison, some of the barriers that prisoners might face um, shortly after the news. So we'll be right back straight after this. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Saturday the 29th of October saw a so-called March of the Mummies, according to an ITV News report. Hundreds of people campaigning for improvements in childcare and working conditions for parents took part in marches in Manchester and 11 other cities. The march was organised by campaign group Pregnant Then Screwed, who say that the UK has some of the world's most expensive childcare. The group believes that children in the UK are being born into poverty because parental leave is not well paid enough and a lack of flexible working conditions is forcing parents out of the workforce. A spokesperson for the campaign group said research suggests that employers are desperately trying to find highly skilled people to work, whilst hundreds of thousands of women who desperately want to work can't. In response, a government spokesperson said, the government is committed to supporting working parents and helping them participate and progress in their working life. The UK has one of the most generous maternity leave entitlements in the world. They went on to highlight the recent consultation on making the right to request flexible working a day one right for all. More than £7.5 million has been announced for the extension of mental health programmes for schools in Northern Ireland. Education Minister Michelle McKilveen announced funding continuation for the Engage 3 and Healthy Happy Minds projects. Ms McKilveen said that the feedback from school leaders and staff was that both programmes had been invaluable in helping to support pupils across all educational settings. Both schemes were created to help alleviate the impact of the pandemic on children and young people. Durham University students have queued on the streets overnight to secure a home for next year, according to a report from the BBC. Lists were released and hundreds lined up outside of estate agents in the city with one student saying some showed up at his current accommodation for a viewing in a panic for next year. The university said it had anticipated pressure on the private rental market and increases in rent and was giving the issue urgent attention. 
Durham Students' Union described the city's housing market as broken and claimed that increasing student numbers were putting both welfare and education at risk. First year undergraduates in the city have guaranteed accommodation, but have to find their own housing after that. The university is encouraging students to contact their college if they are facing difficulties. TES magazine features a story from Scotland as a teaching watchdog raises child protection concerns with the government. The General Teaching Council for Scotland says its role protecting children is being adversely affected by police failing to share information. A judge ruled last year that critical evidence should be shared by police. But the GTC for Scotland says the change has been slow to take effect. New figures also show that the GTCS fitness to teach process has also been hit by the pandemic, with the average time taken to close a case increasing to 249 days during 2021-22, compared to 113 days the previous year. The GTCS is responsible for investigating and making decisions about Scottish teachers' fitness to teach and says it relies on agencies sharing information and making referrals. Police Scotland's Assistant Chief Constable responded by saying that child protection is a priority and no child will be put at risk of harm. The GTCS has recently come into criticism for its handling of child protection cases. The full article is available via TES magazine. Professor Alison Beverstock has been awarded with special recognition at the Soldiering On Awards 2022, held in London recently. Professor Baverstock is the founder and director of the charity Reading Force, which promotes shared reading within forces families. The UK's 130,000 forces children typically face ongoing challenges such as disrupted education, uncertainty and parental absences. The Reading Force project was designed to promote family connectivity through books, as well as raise higher education aspirations, engagement and transition. The Soldiering On Awards recognise the achievements of those serving in the armed forces, as well as those who support them. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about buying a laptop, a question I get asked all the time. So this is what you need to know if you're considering buying a laptop for yourself or a loved one. First up, it's physical shopping versus online shopping. My only advice on this is consider how much you're saving online. If a device goes wrong and you bought it from a shop, you can take it back. Online support will usually require you having to post the device back, which can be a bit messy. Even if you buy online, it's always good to visit a shop and actually see the device. I use these few tests to help me decide on a laptop. First, what is it for? If it's for gaming, then you need to look if it will run the games you want to play. gaming machines will tell you how they perform with popular games. Pick your game and then it will just be a balancing act on how much you're willing to pay. More expensive usually equals better gameplay. Screen size is my next decision. If I'm going to be taking it places, then a smaller screen will make it easier to fit in a bag. If using it a lot, you might want a bigger screen. Next, I try the G test. This is incredibly technical. It involves pressing the G on the keyboard and seeing how much the keyboard flexes. This is a good indicator of build quality. More robust designs will flex less. Sometimes this is a factor I use to decide between two models that are equally powered. If you're a bit of a DIY computer geek, then see if you can upgrade the hard drive and the RAM, etc. Some top-end gaming machines of a cheaper model and bar a small amount of graphics speed, simply have more RAM and a bigger hard disk. Next up is the operating system and the life of the device. Pretty much every device will have a point in time where it's not supported anymore and will stop upgrading. It won't stop working but you'll no longer be able to keep up to date. Sometimes a device with a shorter upgrade life will look appealing because it's cheaper. 
However, in the long run, it won't last as long. Will a reconditioned computer suit you better? A second-hand or reconditioned machine will usually be considerably less. After all the other checks, have a look at the keyboard. The spacebar, if not replaced, will give a good indicator of the amount of use the machine has had. With new or old, feel how hot it gets. Some laptops run hotter than others. This could be uncomfortable if it's on your knee. Look where the power socket is. Will it be an obstruction in your favourite chair? If it's leaned on regularly, it can be broken. Finally, don't be dazzled by flashy lights and gimmicks. At first, you notice them. They'll soon be a part of the furniture. There's no such thing as a bad machine nowadays. There are lots of machines purchased, though, which are not fit for purpose. As always, feel free to send your thoughts to at TT Radio 2022. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back to our show on higher education in prisons with Ruth McFarlane of DWRM, transgender activist, poet and criminology student Dalton Harrison, and writer, editor and lecturer Sean Parker. In the opening section of the show, Ruth gave us an excellent account of the current position concerning higher education study in English prisons. In this section, I'd like us to consider some of the barriers that students might face as they seek to access higher education from a prison cell. So Dalton, before we lost you in the first section, you were taking us through your experience. We've discussed a little bit about the digital experience, but what other challenges did you face as a student in prison? I think for me, it was uh, access to a computer um, period because it, you had to go into the education department a lot of the time. And um, that was meant for people that were doing IT uh, level one and two. So there was rarely any time that you could get a place uh, for you to do your work. And if it was um, an opportunity to do that, you were, you were often told that you weren't allowed to print anything because there was guidelines on how much paper people could use. And uh, you weren't priority as you weren't part of the main lessons. And where did those guidelines come from? What were they designed to ensure, do you think? It was all to do with funding. So there was a certain amount of funding they told me, this was at the time, that they could um, have a certain amount of paper. And when that quota was finished, there wasn't any more. So they had to be careful. So if you'd used it up all, all up by January, there'd be none until the following year? Yeah, I mean, they did seem to prioritise um, there was always um, customer service that managed to get theirs printed out or um, some of the rowdier groups seemed to always get the paper they needed. And I think that a lot of the quieter groups, people that were just trying to do their sentence and get on with education were often pushed aside uh, just to keep the peace. Okay, and you were telling us about this access course and then you've moved on to your criminology degree. How did that transition process take place for you? There were other courses at the time that were in um, the prison that I was in, which I found fascinating. Um, so there was the Inside Out programme, um, which was with Durham University, and we began to learn criminology, um, and that's where my passion sort of was ignited. And what was it about criminology, do you think, that uh, got you particularly interested in it? I think for me it was learning about myself. I never saw myself as... Um, as a, a prolific offender. I never saw myself as somebody that needed help. I was in a very small environment in my mind. Um, and coming into prison, I realized how small my life really was. And I think education gave me that power to, to step out of that. And while you were working on that course, you've talked about that sense of smallness and the degree perhaps giving you a sense of something bigger than that. How did you manage the process of 
connection with other students while you were in prison? Was such a thing possible? There were study groups, um, but I found them quite alienating because everyone's studying at different levels. So often enough, the officer said, we're not here. We're just here to unlock you. We're here to take you down on movement. So when you're sat there trying to get onto the computer system in the library for a study group, there are people that are doing different courses at different levels. And often enough, you'd end up mentoring them because they were seeing you as being a, um, doing a higher course. Therefore, they thought you knew everything. And the officer used to just shut down and sit in the corner. So it was that idea of trying to facilitate everybody and not really managing to get what you needed done. But the actual main obstacle really was, was getting an officer to take you on movement to the study group. If your name wasn't on the list, if there were other problems, if you didn't have the right person to contact to get you uh, down there, then, then it just wouldn't happen at all. And the minute you're short-staffed, which is, is very happens a lot in the prison system, then there was that, that's the first thing that went because they saw it as a luxury, not a priority. And the only thing they really saw as a priority was the meds queue. Um, so, yeah, education was uh, definitely a, on the lowest part of the, the prison regime. So I'm trying to imagine what this room looks like with the study group in it. How many students were in there at a time and what are the kind of facilities like? Well, the study group that we were, I was allowed to go to was in the library. Um, so at the time, it was a couple of computers um, and, and we used to um, sort of get in there quick and, uh, and try and log on because everything seemed to take forever. Um, the, the systems would jam. Nobody knew what, what, how to connect the printer to the computer. Then there wasn't any paper. There always seemed to be a barrier or, or some sort of a time limit to um, accessing everything as quick as possible and then getting moved out again because there's only an hour that you or, or an hour and a half that you could have in there. And how many students would you be sharing that space with? It varied. So I'd say that depending on who's who's doing what, um, probably about 10. Probably about 10. Were many of them doing any of them doing the same course as you? No, I remember that at the time there was a, a couple of us doing um, the Open University, and then there were people doing Stonebridge. Um, there were people doing um, other courses that I hadn't heard of through Prisons Education Trust. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was a, a mixed group. Thank you. Let's bring in Sean now. Sean, what was your experience like when we compare it to that of Dalton? Just see if we can bring Sean back in. Oh. I think you're muted at the moment, Sean. Hi. You're back in now. Am I there? Hello. Hi. <laughs> right. Good. Yeah. Um, that was a fantastic explanation by by Dalton, kind of about how it is inside. It's like spot on. I can't um, improve on it much, but well, I want to. Well, yeah. Um, you do feel like you're an obstacle to the to the officers' um, kind of comforts. To sometimes, and that isn't all officers by any by any stretch, because they're people. They're doing a job just like teachers do, um, but there's many many different kind of people that they have to deal with. So when they have a couple of prisoners who are very kind of well well behaved, because people in kind of education or aspiring to be inside, sort of are very very well behaved. So they have to handle that and be polite to them at the same time that they got a person kind of next door kind of kicking off on spice or something so mm. it's difficult for them to have to handle those two things happening so you 
And as a responsible human being, you have to understand it off their point of view. And then when kind of other prisoners kind of to see that you're trying to look at other points of view, they have a suspicion of that. So you end up being considered a grass or something like that, perhaps, I don't know. But that kind of thinking is, that's it's the normal sort of thinking in prison is paranoia and suspicion. So when you behave like you're on the side of the people who've put you inside, there's suspicion against you as a student. So um, it's, it, it's an endless kind of vicious circle of difficulty for education inside, which I think Dalton just sort of pointed out very well. And you've moved into writing and editing. How much of that new path for you started in prison? It's not new at all, uh, Chris. It's, um, I, I, I've um, been, been doing this since I was 20, um, when I was first uh, had the poem published in the Carmarthen Journal. And then before I went inside, I had six books published. And after I kind of came out last summer, I did my seventh. So the, so the time that I spent inside, for which I'm a prisoner, uh, we're maintaining innocence, by the way. So it's like a double um, complex on, on that point. Um, mm. I, I was inside, so I just wanted to continue my professional career <laughs> because what else am I going to do being sort of kind of taken out of it and unjustly as far as I was concerned? So mm. that's what I did. I continued with with my plans and outside I'm putting the plans into action um, just on a personal level there. Sorry yeah so it's about a continuation of something that had never stopped really. That's right that's right. (laughs) How how did that environment lend itself towards that kind of writing process? Um, It's obviously when you're inside it's a reduced situation in every way you're in a cold dark room not always cold to be honest um because they had heating on all the time it's too hot sometimes if i may but you know it's very very bleak it's austere there's a tv and a sink and a toilet that kind of thing it's grim um so what do you do you have handwriting to do your essays if you're like me you you kind of kind of go inside to your your inner world and you express it on paper whether that's art or poetry like dalton did or as I did as well, every evening, a new poem to try and get something out of this ridiculous day that you're stuck with. Um, And then when you start to see, oh, there's education here, there's education there, how am I going to go about that? I'll do that as a part of a plan tomorrow because I can't get online and do it now. So I started to become very good at doing a plan. (laughs) and But I've always been good at that. I just got very, very good at it inside. And I'm doing the plan now and you do look forward to being outside. If there's anything good about prison, it's that you start to really understand the value of work, to, to, not, not, to, not, not to be like kind of conservative about it, but the value of work does really become, because you can't properly work. So once you can, it's really inspiring. Yeah, I can remember some stories of some quite well-known public figures who have spent some time in prison and then use that time to, I think, reflect on where they are and move towards the future with a different path in mind. So I'm thinking of Mm. someone like Jonathan Aitken, for instance, Mm. who has talked at length about his experience. Uh, What was your experience when you looked around the study room that you were in? Um, At uh, the Dartmoor, it it was a whole kind of area outside of of the building which is old 
outside this hut, which is sort of new, like 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 an army hut. And inside there was different rooms for different different sort of um, subjects. Um, there's the maths here and the English there, kind of cookery upstairs, that sort of thing. Um, the teacher I had in there was, was really nice. She was great and worked really hard and sort of tried her best. And of course, I'm at the front there like a good student being a swap and the other guys at the back taking the mick out of me and of her and of the fact that we're actually attempting to do something as opposed to being very sort of cynical about it. Though over the process, they started to get more and better and better, asking more questions and kind of it's a very macho place so they started to become not so macho as the course went on <laughs> yeah and do you have any thoughts on representations of prison then on the television and in literature uh, uh um yeah of course um when it comes to time which was that brilliant thing with sean bean and uh Stephen even Graham just last year, um, which I saw um, at uh, at to Dartmoor itself. That it, that was excellently done in a visual sense. That's what the prison is like. You know, that's what it looks like, and the atmosphere kind of can be like that. Um, but also, that was a very hardcore version where all the prisons are so so different. There's a, there's a gentle one that you can go to, and there's one for older people. It's that because they each have their own kind of profiles, mm-hmm. um, but. The problem with the documentary makers is that being sort of journalistic, excuse me, journalistic, they're always kind of kind of looking out for the conflict, and there isn't always conflict. And on the whole, inside is very boring. It's not all kind of fights everywhere. It's just really tedious, and that's what isn't captured because it wouldn't make for very good TV, probably. So does does a place that's typically tedious make for a useful space in which study can happen if all of the right tools and all of the right equipment were available yes it absolutely does i think that's a really really good point and um it's really kind of uh, uh, underutilized because people don't really understand what prison is you know it's not perhaps there's drugs and things like that it never came my way in the in, you know i was inside for four years i was never offered drugs and never saw any i saw the effects of it and a couple of people but many 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 more bored people are kind of very underutilized and feeling very guilty and all those kind of things you'd expect but not much violence i didn't actually see you know there wasn't kind of any of that at all um but you always heard about that in the media and you're like that representation isn't what I'm living here, which is just boring. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, Dalton, we, we discussed this idea that some of the opportunities available for breaking the boredom through study might suggest that prisons would be a very good place for students to take up a new subject or a new skill. You've got some concerns about some of the subjects being offered in some prisons, though. Would you like to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think for me, it's um, being a transgender prisoner. I did find that it was very genderized in the female prison. Um, I found that hair and beauty um, may be okay for some, but I didn't feel that it was really uh, creating a, a, the whole environment that you could really work with in regards to female prisons. I think we, we need to be more broad, which I find there's so much more uh, or what I see um, in um, in the media, there's so much more possibilities for funding when it comes to the male estate. Even though it is larger, there's there's more people per head. 
but I think we 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 seem to um just look at, at the female estate as as they're the caregivers, and I think that goes throughout the prison system when it comes to sentencing, the way that we handle female offenders. I honestly think that there's so many stereotypes that don't seem to have, have moved very far away. Um, I think we need a lot more put into the female system to make it work, and education is definitely the key. And what kind of courses would you like to see in female prisons? I'd, I'd like to see um, a lot more career-driven, um, not just customer service, but something that's more substantial whether it be bricklaying painting and decorating more of that uh more menial as well as car mechanics anything that can create a professional career or, or promote people in the workforce rather than just telling a whole group of people that they're only really going to learn about cleaning or sewing yeah and if we think about the relationship between the workplace outside the prison and the experience inside prison, what's the state of kind of apprenticeship type routes or apprenticeship degree routes in prisons at the moment? I mean, I, I personally, I never really saw anything that I could really deal with. I did a lot, a lot of my history prior to prison was security. And I just found that obviously I couldn't go back to those jobs because of uh, security checks. But then, you know, there needs to be so much more possibility for apprenticeships. But I saw a lot of other female prisons down south uh, getting a lot of more avenues and a lot more progression than I felt that the northern prisons were getting. So not only was there quite a big substantial uh, difference between north and south in regards to the way that they're approaching female prisons, but also open and closed, the difference in security. And I just think it's blocking every step of the way. Uh, and that's creating a lot of um, pockets of victimization that I feel that education could really just um, be a bridge between that. So what do you mean by uh, security issues when you get out? I think security for me is the female estate isn't run as A, B, C category. It's either open or closed. But yet there are a lot of prisons in the female estates that are treating it like high security prisons. I was in one prison where we were allowed to access different levels of education. We were allowed to access different things like razors or things they called tools. Um, and, and then I went to another prison and we weren't even allowed to have a stamp sent in. We weren't allowed to have paper sent in. Um, and it's that idea of like what part of this security is, is um, you know, where one person can live in one prison and then go across to the next and all of a sudden their security goes up because that isn't, shouldn't be what's happening and that's the same with education so it's stopping people um from from growing and evolving um and it's creating um yeah just a really false environment so when you do finally get to open prison if you ever do and you can access all these things you might not be in the right headspace for it um or you might not understand you know you've got you haven't got enough sort of idea of how to to, to access that before you're due out so do prisoners get moved about between prisons quite frequently then? Over COVID, not. Obviously, that all stopped. But I mean, when I was in prison, I was moved around within the first few weeks of being in one prison. Um, I was transported to another area completely. And there, there was a lot of that going on at the time uh, where people were getting shifted around because of the female prisons were, were overcrowded. So they were trying to manoeuvre everything round. But I mean, I do find that... Um, Obviously, over COVID, that stopped, but there's still, it just means that you're then trapped in one prison that you can only access 
it's basically if the governor is willing to to put into education depending on what prison you're in so then it's still uh, russian roulette as far as i'm concerned i think we've also talked about the fact that it limits your university connections as well doesn't it if you're moving from prison to prison possibly from one end of the country to the other definitely um with there being such a, a lack of female resources, um, same with um, female hostels on release, um, you, I've, I, I was um, put in a female hostel in Leeds. I've never been to Leeds. I didn't understand the area. There were also people that I met there that were from London that had been moved there for different reasons because that was the nearest hostel that they could get put in and the space availability. So it's that idea of just really inconsistent and really disorientating for people. And when they've got care issues, they've got children, they've got family, then education does get put on the back burner uh, and I just think that needs to, to be addressed. Thanks very much Dalton you've given us a good picture there I think of a system under considerable strain and resources kind of being stretched perhaps beyond their capacity to function. We'll consider how we might overcome some of these barriers in the final section of the show just after this. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Welcome back to the final part of our discussion on higher education in prisons with Ruth McFarlane, Dalton Harrison and Sean Parker. We've talked about some of the challenges that prisoners might face as they attempt to complete a course of higher education in prison. I wonder if we might now reflect on what changes might be made to improve the way the system works for students, for those seeking to support students make the transition to campus-based learning, and for universities and course providers. Um, Ruth, how might agencies and public bodies be remodelled to support those with direct experience of the criminal justice system? Um, I think the, the um, key way to be reducing um, stigma and barriers is to be amplifying the voice of people who have this lived experience of prison. Um, too often people are um, excluded and othered and talked about in ways that are very negative. And um, the more that we hear the voices of um, amazing people like Dalton and Sean and very many others 
um, the more that we can reduce that that stigma and learn that these are just this is just you know normal people having had some problems in the past we've all had problems in our past we all deserve to be given an opportunity in the future um, so so that's absolutely the, the first thing that I think is is greater exposure of those voices of people who have that personal experience and um, one of the things that, that we try to do is to talk about creating cultures of acceptance um, within universities and with employers and more broadly in society. Are you able to say a little bit more about how that creating the culture of acceptance might work in practical terms? Um, yeah, so, um, well, as a starting point, just um, during, during COVID, Prior to COVID, some universities had already been engaging um, in um, learning programmes within prison, as Dalton has described with the excellent Inside Out programme that's run by Durham University. Those tend to be on quite a regional, small scale basis with a single module, um, students and tutors going into the prison and studying alongside people in prison. It's excellent, it's had lots of great feedback, but it's not very scalable. Um, during COVID, of course, lots of universities had to address the fact that they needed to try and support their mainstream students who weren't able to be on campus. And so we're trying to capitalise on that by saying, all right, well, here's a whole great cohort of students who can't attend campus, but who are still really interested in studying with you. And so when we speak to universities, we talk to them about their um, outreach agendas, their widening participation, and we try to have some really open discussions with them about um, right, what would it look like when this person who's studying in prison, because generally universities are quite interested in the work that we do and saying, we, you know, yes, we'd like to explore this. What would it look like when people are released from prison? How are you going to manage that um, in terms of your admissions process, your inclusion, your pastoral care, your safeguarding? Um, and we found that we need to be having those quite challenging conversations with universities um, about well what's that going to look like and how are we going to manage this and it's very doable um, as long as people are, are willing to engage in those discussions okay so it's about making sure the management team of the university are familiar with the potential logistical challenges that that might create for them yeah, so again, I think a lot of the, um, the sort of the initial reaction is based on um, an unfounded prejudice, really. Um, and so what we're trying to do when we talk about this advocacy process is to say, look, we're not about to ask you to put lots of people at risk. Um, every discussion that we have about somebody who's released from prison is about what they're able to do and is based on what probation officers and other professionals have said, you know, here's the conditions, here's the restrictions, here's what people are allowed to do. Um, but in my experience, there's always ways that that, that, that can be managed and supported. Um, and in fact, what I tend to say to universities is that um, probably with students coming out of prison, you'll know a lot more about them than you do about all the rest of your student population. Um, and so it's, you know, like I say, it's about recognising that um, people have the capacity to change and people need to be given opportunities um, to, to develop and enjoy study. 
Dalton, would you like to come in on that question as well about how universities manage the transition for former prisoner students in the campus uh, spaces? I think for me, um, I did find it quite hard to to uh, access university initially because of risk assessments. And although I am fully supportive of all universities doing risk assessments, evaluating, um, I felt very alienated from the procedure. Um, they didn't tell me what I really had to to do or or what it is that I needed to be able to pass to get into university. And it was just a case of the first time in 2019 that said, well, you haven't passed the, the, uh, the risk assessment. So that's it. Bye. Uh, and there was no there's no way of me proving myself. There was no way of me talking uh, to a board and, and maybe fighting my case and saying this is what I've done. This is who I am now. Um, there, there was there was nothing to be able to have that sort of personal edge where I could sort of say this is me. Um, and I think that's the disjointing factor. I continued. I persevered. But with I had a very good support network from people in the hostel that I'd worked with that actually worked in the university as well. I had a network. I had companies like DWRM supporting me and making me believe that I wasn't the monster that I somehow found that I felt I was uh, due to all these uh, barriers that I was facing, uh, where I was being told that I was going to do this or they weren't prepared for that or they weren't sure how I'd react in a situation. And I suddenly felt like, am I that person? Because who they're describing, I don't recognise. Uh, yeah, and I think you need to be grounded and you need that support to continue. And it was certainly worth persevering, but a lot of people don't. And that's the scary thing, because they'll never get out of that trap. Um, and then we wonder why it's a revolving door. Mm. Did you recognise a culture of acceptance in the student body? Um, a lot of people aren't as accepting as they like to believe. Um, DWRM was the first company that I saw, uh, which made me feel like like I smiled when I left their meetings or I smiled when I talked to them. Um, and I thought, wow, I don't think I've smiled for a long time. And it's sometimes the most simplest things. And I realized that a lot of people weren't um, facilitating me. A lot of people weren't, they were labeling me. Um, they were labeling me for a lot of reasons. And, I, and I, there wasn't that culture of acceptance that I, that I hoped for. And that was a, a lot of the students as well. Not all of them, but quite a lot of them. And how does that relate to your criminology studies? Is there something you've noticed in your studies that might explain that attitude from others? Uh, I do think that I've uh, definitely sub suffered like labelling theory and all the rest of it. But there's that it's that idea of um, people are scared of what they don't know. But if they're told that, that what is in front of them is scary, a, a lot of people, we did a module on prison. And some of the people that were in that class said that they thought prisons were like holiday camps, that we all had playstations. And, and it was very, very, uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't punitive enough. And then there are other people that had this perception that I've probably seen written on the Sun newspapers. And I just think that where are we getting our information from? And if we are to think more um, actively as academics, we should all have a, a more critical approach to things rather than just saying you're bad. You can't have this. Uh, we need to look more critically, and I think I think that's what's needed uh, right now, especially in the prison system. Are there any systems outside the UK that you're particularly um, expecting might offer us models for change? I mean, obviously, I've, I've, I like some of the procedures that happen in Norway. Um, my family are Dutch. Um, when I was at my mum's funeral, um, I had to be handcuffed uh, because that's procedures that are 
uh, from the very British system. Um, I understood that was fine, but they were very shocked. And the looks on their faces um, at the way that I was being handled as a prisoner when they've come from another background, like I say, in Holland, that, that just spoke volumes to me um, in, in what systems are good and what systems are, are not necessarily working. And do you think there's something about Northern European society that makes it easier for them to accept uh, ex-prisoners into the community again? I think a lot of the, uh, the, the, the sort of like, we, we seem to be very Western. We like what the Americans are doing. It's zero tolerance. It's, we, we seem to really like that. Um, and when we look at other countries that aren't so much influenced by um, that sort of Western approach and they're taking on new approaches of their own, or we're not hearing that because we're only hearing um, the power um, and the people that get the funding and the people that do the research. So, you know, I think it is worth looking at what other cultures are doing um, and, and seeing if we can adopt a, a better or a, at least a more well-grounded approach. Thank you. Sean, any thoughts on systems outside the UK that we might seek to emulate? Uh, well, he's uh, kind of completely right there about Norway. Um, I often think that there's some sort of a deal happening between the kind of academics here and the academics in Norway, where all the only one we ever hear about is, is the Norwegian system, because it's quite good when it comes to prisons, but we actually mean it's liberal, um, which is fine, because um, people just should be as kind of produced uh, or said earlier on with, with people. And this idea that, um, of course, the hard earned taxpayers money is being paid, being spent on the prisoners. So what you want that to mean is that it's not just um, putting them inside for £45,000 a year on average, that's the fact, um, for just being put into a different sort of parallel reality where, where things are just hostile, suspicious and negative, which is what prison is. So if you want to get away from that, give education, get the prison staff to be trained partly, or the ones that want to be, um, in college on opportunities, which means education. And, and, and it doesn't have to be just the sewing or just the brickwork. It kind of can be history or drama or anything else that's in education. That, you, that your listeners kind of specialise in, you know, all those things, because at the moment it's a second level situation at best. And that's not fair on the DWRM or the Prison Education Trust or, or the prisoners themselves. Um, yeah. Thank you, Ruth. Is there any solution that could cost us less money and generate better results? Uh, oh, gosh, I wish I had a magic wand to wave, to wave in that regard. Um, I mean, I, I do think that ed education is, is a great solution. I think, you know, part of the cost of um, our prison system is the revolving door that we've spoken about. And we know that the more that people engage in education, the better opportunities they have when, when they're released. We know that meeting those basic needs of um, housing, family connections, um, having a, a job and a legitimate income all contribute towards um desistance towards pe people not reoffending and not going back into prison and, and that in itself is is a costly process so as with all sorts of other systems um prevention is better than cure and and enabling people to access good quality education is is one of the best solutions so i i'm always an advocate for for that and for trying to make sure that 
um, people who don't fit into the boxes of standard mainstream education are also properly catered for. Yeah, the issue of special educational needs sometimes arises in discussions about prison education. How well do you think students with SEND needs are being catered for in the prison system at present? Oh, I mean, that's another huge topic. Um, I And it, it varies. There are some excellent practitioners um, in, in prisons. I was at a conference last week um, run by the Prisoner Learning Alliance um, where there were some very good solutions being offered, um, but also um, a, a, a very critical um, report from Ofsted about the lack of support for people who are not able to read when they go into prison. Um, and it's, you know, in, in many ways, it's an ideal opportunity to support people to learn to read. And the charity, the Shannon Trust, does amazing work in this area. But the fact that that is down to a charity rather than to government funded provision sort of tells us everything that we need to know, really. So what does that programme entail? The Shannon Trust um, train mentors to um, work with people on a, a prescribed reading programme. Um, uh, turning pages and um, so people then work on a one-to-one -one basis um, on the wing in association time in the library in in all sorts of different um, arenas for five minutes at a time 10 20 minutes teaching people how to read and, and it's proved to be very very successful thank you Dalton how did you see struggling readers coping in your prison experience? I mean, I was a Shannon Trust mentor, so I, I was really, I really wanted to push that. I really wanted to help people because it is vast as far as I was concerned. There were women that were getting bullied because they couldn't read. They didn't want to say they couldn't read. They were asking, they were trusting the wrong people. Um, and most people would do their canteen sheets every week and that because they couldn't read the canteen sheets and therefore spending their money money is so limited within the female um, prison system because we get less wages than the male 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 prisons um so it's that idea of just creating more victimization um because women get paid less because women have less resources to education so yeah reading is the utmost importance because at least then that that person can read signs they can see what's going on around them I mean, everywhere you go is is uh, is signs. There's paperwork to to fill out. There's apps. There's and when somebody can't access that, um, it, you are literally just sending them it through their sentence blind. Everything is written down. Your oasis plan. Your you know. So it is a very scary thing that you don't know what you're meant to do to, for your uh, offender manager. You don't know what you're meant to do um, for your wing to get enhancements. You know, so you're, you're limiting somebody um, in the in every structure of life um, when they can't read. So, yeah, it is vital uh, to keep pushing that. Can you explain the concept of the OASIS plan for us, please? Um, it's it's a report that I got. Well, everyone gets. Um, so it tells you it's telling you what it is that they think is your risk, that what, what it is that they believe that you need to do to improve that, what you need to do to work within the prison system to uh, rehabilitate yourself, um, it, things that you may have to engage in, courses they might want you to do. And these things are, are um, sort of mapped out for you. Um, but if you don't understand that, if you can't understand or read it, um, then you're not going to be aware of what you need to do um, 
And there's a lot of people that have gone through their whole sentence not rea realizing they have to do a particular course, which means that they have to do it when they get out. If for some reason they're stressed when they get out and they don't do that course, then they could end up going back in again because they're not complying with probation. So that some people that, that has affected them. So how does that process work then that you can be recalled to prison? Recall is, is very easy. Um, I was nearly recalled. Um, it's that idea of, of you're not complying. A lot of people think you have to create a new, well, you have to commit a new offence. It's not necessarily that. Um, I was very scared of being homeless. Um, and I told the hostel, I told my probation, who wasn't in the area that the hostel was in, that I was going to do this. I left them messages. And I went and signed a lease, which is a legal, a legal document to get this bed sit. Because I knew I was being... I had my three months up in the hostel and I had to leave, which meant if I didn't have a home, I'd be homeless. So I signed that and the probation said that I had gone against my license agreement and, and um, they needed to sanction every property that I, that I looked at, let alone couldn't sign for. So I'd broken that. So potentially I could have gone back. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to fight my case and they gave me a six month warning that if I did anything else, then I would be um, recalled to prison. And that can be up to 14 days or I think your entire sentence um, that you have left to serve in the community. And do those people that don't speak English in prisons have access to translation facilities so they can process these documents? There is a system um, that the officers are supposed to use, and I've never seen them use them once. There are fantastic officers, don't get me wrong. Um, but uh, it's that it's idea of... Um, the environment they're on a, they're on time restraints they have to have unlock they have to do this they have everything padded out for them and anything that an, a prisoner comes to them with with a problem is is an add-on to that it's an extra and the officers are extremely stressed um they're in a high volatile environment um yeah it can be boring but when you've got 10 20 people outside the office all asking for um paperwork to be sorted out or asking for phone things to be put on their numbers or you know, it can get quite stressful. So when it comes to foreign national prisoners that don't speak English, often enough, um, they'll have to bunch together and they'll figure out which language that they can learn together. Or maybe one of them knows French, the other one knows French, maybe one knows Spanish, uh, maybe one can speak clipped English. Um, and then they, they have to adapt that way. And I've seen that throughout my time. Um, and, and, it's, and it's very sad. Thank you, Sean. Have you seen literacy issues presenting themselves in your experience? There's there's an, an amazing kind of amount of, of people who are on the autistic spectrum in prison, um, kind of, uh, uh, which is underdiagnosed and diagnosed, but it's the underdiagnosed which are fascinating because people think they're arrogant, hostile, weird, and they're avoided, they're sometimes bullied, and... Um, at the time I was in, I was also a Samaritan's listener. So I was able to, um, but you don't give advice in that role, you just listen. And so I just like pick up this fact that, God, these people are undiagnosed, all of them. <laughs> lots, not all of them, but lots of them. And that kind of uh, went into the, into the, liter into the, into the liter literacy stuff as well. Um, the work that the Shannon Trust do, as kind of Ruth was saying, is amazing, very helpful. Um, again, sort of seen with suspicion as what's that prisoner trying to get special treatment for? That is a very kind of common response. And when you hear it, 
you, what you want to do as a fair human being is say, why did you say that? But if you say in prison, well, why did you say that? You're basically asking for a fight, left, right and centre. So you don't express these very ordinary natural things that you would, you know, in the community. Why did you say that? <laughs> you just keep it all to yourself. So you keep it all to yourself for the four years. That includes the people who can't can't actually uh, read that well. Um, uh, yeah, that's my experiences of it. So Dalton's explained this process of kind of collegiate working together to break through the English language barrier in some cases. Have you seen any particularly collaborative moments taking place in these study rooms? Um, to be honest, the experiences I had were in the West Country. And the way that the prison system is run is that in the West Country, there wasn't much of an issue with English as a second language. Because uh, yeah, even though I actually taught English for 10 years in Istanbul, um, that wasn't the experience I had inside. Um, it was pretty good in terms of people understanding at least the instructions. Yeah, so I don't have a lot of experience of what kind of Dalton actually talks about there specifically. Okay, thank you. And in terms of this scenario where you're studying in prison and you're studying in groups, how much of that was actually people studying alone together and how much of that was people working with each other? Um. In the classes that I was in uh, for about six weeks or so in various different things, there was an arts class that I wanted to do a refresher on, which is incredibly valuable. It's a really good thing to do inside as art. That was in in a room with kind of with a bunch of other guys who just kind of wanted a bit of artistic reflection, a couple who hadn't ever painted before. I've got a degree in it, so I was just doing that to do something, <laughs> and it was very wonderful i've got a couple of the pictures up here in my flat um and that was in class together and the tutor was good he was just a very ordinary bloke talking to you in an ordinary way which is nice um but as kind of dalton's talked about the structure of, of the core day there's no real flexible there, there is no flexibility in in the closer state and not much in the open estate either by the way um so you get get back after dinner banged up and you're in, in your cell for the night. And says, yes, there's a bit of TV to switch off, which is very valuable, as you can imagine. Um, but also, we don't want to do too much of that. We're teachers, we're thinkers, you know, all that students, and you want to use the brain. So you get out the pen and paper and, and you work alone. Well, I did anyway, and I know a lot of other guys did. You work alone, scribble away, get your plan done, get, uh, access your... It, 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 um, interior world uh in the way that, that we recognize as teachers so you're kind of teaching yourself to be honest and then when you're doing it but by post then you're hoping and you're thinking well i'm going to hear back from that in about six weeks maybe and um it's not email <laughs> culture uh, i don't know if that really answered your question but that was my experiences of of that part okay so i kind of retreat into an interior world yeah yeah for long uh, periods of the day for long periods of the evening. And then, of course, um, the COVID came in 2020 and that was halfway through my sentence. And it's like, right, well, that's interesting. And But I was able to get out to the prison magazine, which I was the editor of. So they're like, important journalistic job, you need to be out. I'm like, oh, thank God. So um, mm -hmm. 
you know, just as it, as it was in the community, I was able to go across the prison to, to, to the magazine office and do that during the day, which is, I recognise, very valuable. Not the case for most most other guys banged up for, for 23 hours a day doing whatever they were doing in their, in their cells. So it sounds like a relatively smooth transition for you then as compared with perhaps other prisoners. I got lucky on that one <laughs> because I think the desktop uh, manager there at Dartmoor Kind of, um, kind of, sort of appreciated the work that I kind of could do to keep the communication going because that's what the magazine did. Um, kept people entertained with the stories of outside coming inside, and the news and things. And that's what we did as being an editor. That's what I do. So it was um, very, very handy doing that. But yeah, I did get lucky. I don't deny that. And it's not the case for everybody inside. It's a class system inside. So I already had a little bit of education. So you already get a little bit of uh, kind of. Li- the leeway because you're being polite and you're trying to make things work as opposed to other guys who will just say no at every opportunity and get no a lot of the time. Mm, thank you. Um, that brings us very neatly to the end of a, another late show in which we've considered the challenges that confront those seeking to follow a course of higher education while completing a custodial sentence the benefits that the higher education might offer to those looking to successfully make the transition from prison life towards a stable position on the outside, and the ways in which the system might change in order to give ex-offenders every prospect of negotiating the rehabilitation process with success. Thank you very much, Dalton, for sharing your personal challenges, experiences and hopes with us on Teachers Talk Radio this evening. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a really good experience. Thank you very much, Sean, for the same on your behalf. Um, Listening to your personal challenges, experiences and hopes, I think, has given us a very sharp insight into the lives of students whose struggles so often go unseen and unnoticed. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. It's been very exciting doing it and good to be at the sharp end, as you you say. (laughs) Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you too, Ruth, for helping us make sense of the policy issues that surround prison education and for your thoughts on the advocacy work that you are involved with. Thank you. It's been really good to have the opportunity to talk a bit more about um, this area of work and I really appreciate Dalton and Sean both being so open and honest about their own experiences. They're, they're the people that we need to be hearing from. Certainly, I think their testimony was very powerful indeed. And it certainly helped us, I think, imagine what the experience might be like on the inside while trying to work through those assessment tasks without access to computers, without access perhaps to the specialist teaching that we might find outside and essentially the resource of determination and confidence and encouragement from people like those who work for your organisation, Ruth. So thank you very much indeed. I wish you and the students with whom you work every success for the academic year ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate that. That's all from me for this month. So thank you for listening and we'll speak again in November. Good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. 
We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.